Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Hello and welcome to the very first Regenerative Roundtable. This is a new segment that I've decided to start here for Season 2, in which myself and the whole Abundant Edge team gets together, usually in the evening, seeing as this is what we do anyway, and we have one of the conversations that we usually get into in the evenings, talking about all the same topics that we cover here in the podcast normally. So today you'll be hearing from me, Oliver Gaucher, Neil Hegarty, one of our two permaculture specialists, and Jeremy Fellows. Both Jeremy and Neil go into their own backgrounds and information about themselves just really briefly, but know that if you want to learn more about any of them as individuals, they were both interviewed on the podcast in their own episodes, which they refer to as soon as I ask them to introduce themselves. So you can always check those out in the archives from the show. Together, we're going to be talking about a lot of the projects, including the apprenticeship and volunteers that we've been hosting on the site lately, as we start to implement the Abundant Edge demonstration farm here in Sununa on Lake Atitlan, Guatemala. We also answer listener questions from the Facebook page. The Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page you can access at any time. And if you would like to hear one of your own questions answered, you can just leave us a private message or post on the page itself. So instead of doing one of the longer, more drawn out introductions that I tend to do for the regular interviews, I'm going to let the boys take it away and bear with us a little bit. This is the first time that we're trying to actually record one of these nutty conversations that we normally have. So it takes us a little while to get into the swing of things, but it gets really fun towards the end and their answers to the listener questions are remarkable, very in-depth, and I'm sure you'll get a lot of valuable information out of it. So here we are the first regenerative roundtable. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us on our first episode that all three of us are doing together. This is kind of fun. Also the first episode where we are on our own homestead. Um, and this is going to be one of the main things that we talk about in this first regenerative roundtable. I'm here with my colleagues, Neil Hegarty and Jeremy Fellows. So why don't you guys just introduce yourselves real quick and then we'll start talking about some of the projects that have been going on here. Here you go, Neil. Uh, yeah, thanks, Oliver. Um, all right, so, yeah, what do you want to know about me? I'm Neil. Um, that's what people call me. Um, you know, I've been in Guatemala for four years. Uh, I did a bunch of stuff before that, but I have a whole podcast, so, you know, just listen to that if you want. Um, and, yeah, I'm, like, hanging out. <laughs> We're hanging out in our, like, little permaculture spot right now. Uh, next to the bodega, uh, like tool shed that me and Jeremy built in like two days, um, and we made that into like a little bedroom tool shed, which is actually a great thing to do for anyone who's like thinking of getting land because it lets you be on the land all the time, live super free, kind of connect with the land. So we're here outside our little uh, metal bodega, and uh, <laughs> that's where I've been living these last uh, couple of months, and we'll be living until the house is built. Uh, and we're drinking our Hokote wine. Um, um, yeah. Thanks, Neil. Uh, yeah, I'm Jeremy. Uh, I also have a podcast um, that kind of gives a story of who I am. But uh, uh, here and now, I've moved into Zununa along with the boys here. Um, before that, I was, I was traveling around a bit and working. 
Uh, I have a bus that a friend, a couple of friends and I uh, bought and converted that we had been living in because I didn't have a piece of land. And for various other reasons, it was quite useful. Even now it is because I'm living in it just across the street from our land uh, next to the bodega so that once again, we can be on the land in a spot, but not have to make any permanent structural decisions like immediately. So there's no stress on that. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But yeah, we're all here together, um, getting moving real fast with all sorts of interesting stuff that we're going to talk about now. Cool. Thanks, guys. Um, All right, let's talk a little bit about the projects that we've been up to lately, both with the apprentices, our volunteers, uh, the projects that we have going on here on our own site, but also some of the work that we're doing for clients and in the community. So, Jeremy, why don't you tell me what you've been working on at least uh, over these last three weeks since the apprenticeship started. Okay, so I uh, came into this situation with a decent kind of portfolio and understanding of um, earthworks and water systems. Uh, Neil and I both are, are very focused on this in terms of sort of how these aspects can connect the landscape together, all the various components that kind of fit under the design kind of focus that these uh, specific elements put into frame for us. Uh, if uh, people have heard of the scale of permaculture, it's this sort of like um, designer decision-making uh, checklist that you go through to look at what are the things that you should really be focusing on immediately uh, due to the, not only how important they are to the subsequent uh, elements, but also how permanent they are in the design itself, and in the ecosystem around them. And it starts with climate. And of course, that was something that we we looked into heavily. We've been living here for a bit, been trying to figure out. Yeah, I mean, for five or six years, Neil and I. So climate is super important. It tells us what species we should be focusing on. It tells us what time of year we should be doing certain things. It's a wet season, dry season climate here in that in the summer months, there's quite a lot of rain. It's not a good time to build. Um, it's a great time to put perennial species in the ground and work with those. So we have a whole strategy based around that. Neil, um, we'll talk a bit about that. That's something that he's focused on is our planting strategy this coming year. But with this dry season that we're in now during the winter and spring months, it's very important that we f- focus on earthworks and construction. Um, so. When we go down the scale of permanence, it moves into landform. Landform is very permanent. It's things that you can't change about the landscape, but it's something that you can embellish or work with to make sure that other aspects of the landscape function properly, i.e. water. Um, so that's something that I've been very focused on in my design work. And here on the property, you start with the landform, you look at what your soil is made of, you determine what it can be most useful for. We have a lot of rocks. It's like a washout kind of area. There's what we call like alluvial soils. They've been washed in by um, uh, infrequent storms and flooding. Uh, So we look at that soil profile and we find that it's very rocky, but the actual composition of the soil is great for growing crops if you can get the rocks out. So it makes a lot of sense for us to construct as much as we can with the rocks in the soil and thus freeing up nice, loose, um, arable land for growing crops. Um, and so we start at the top of the property. This is, is, is a very important thing to look at. Is like, uh, when it comes to water, which is the next uh, component on the list or element, um, storing it nice and high on the property is a great place to start in any situation. And that's basically what I'm doing right now or focusing my design work on is catching water at the top of the property, assessing that water, seeing what it is. And for us, river water is a great um, sector flow for water for us. It's um, slightly polluted uh, and quite misused. And for us, bringing it onto land is not like something that we look at as damaging to the, to the landscape. We can take that water, we can clean it, we can work it into the ecosystem, we can charge the water table around us 
um, with this water and produce really abundant diversity of of perennial crops that we use for many different things. And everyone below us, of course, as well, because this water just keeps flowing. It charges the ground table. It starts to flow at a certain point below our property, and it can mean a lot of opportunities in the future. So catching this water, which is, is quite abundant, we, we get... Um, I actually haven't um, done the I haven't done the measurements yet, but we have somewhere between three thousand to four thousand liters a day flowing on the land as we speak. So that kind of flow of water could actually be quite um, a problem if you're not using it properly. It can wash uh, nutrients out of the soil. It can damage the structures that we have around us. Um, but taking that water and putting it into shallow flowing systems that connect the property together means that we can grow a, an, an amazing abundance of food and fodder and fibers, all the F's that we talk about with our, with our um, systems that we create. Um, taking that water and creating uh, aquatic ecosystems with it is, is very important. It's an abundance of food. It creates amazing habitat for wild species. And basically, it sequesters more carbon than any other kind of technique we can use here. So as you see, when you start combining water with proper earthworks, getting the water to flow slowly and around the landscape, um, and combining that with sunlight, it's important that we bring this water out from sort of cracks and crevices where it is on the property, and pulling it into the sunnier regions um, thus heating up the water, giving more opportunities for food production for not just us, but all the various species that we will be hosting in these habitats we create. Um, growing fish, uh, tilapia, having malanga, a perennial starch uh, root crop that grows extremely fast and under any circumstance, but especially in these sort of like warm areas on the outsides of terraces that we can run shallow water. It's basically the perfect uh, environment for these things to grow. All the, the components that we have going here, we'll also be doing um, turmeric and ginger uh, on the edge of this, growing uh, perennial fences or living fences to hold up our edges and getting them to grow super fast so that we can coppice them for not only fuel, but for animal fodder as well, which Neil I'm sure we'll talk about uh, loads. Um, it's kind of <laughs> difficult to stick on one topic when we're talking about a thing like this because everything is connected together. But because of that, I can actually pass the mic on and can move on to another subject. Excellent. Yeah, um, those water systems are coming along really well. So, Neil, can you elaborate on some of the things that Jeremy talked about and give us an overview of the projects and um, implementations that you've been working on over the last week or three weeks. <laughs> yeah, that was like cool. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, yeah, it's, <clears throat> that's actually really like great stuff to understand, you know, what Jeremy was talking about there. Um, cause I remember when I came to Sununa first and met Shad in Atitlan Organics and saw like hoses, um, running onto his land into like ponds and swales from the river. And like, I was actually kind of new to permaculture at the time and even though I un understood it I was like part of me was like is that cool like that he has like river he's like siphoning off the river onto his land um but actually Shad himself like explains it really well in the classes uh you know and he says like that you know when he started looking at it first and he realized eventually that like if everyone in Sununa had hoses running into swales and ponds on their land and were moving it sideways that initially the river would go down but eventually it would actually come way back up and widen out and you'd get springs of water popping up in other places and you'd basically get the effect of the valley kind of shallowing out <clears throat> and you know it's like that idea that you first maybe don't understand about abundance but it's like water will create more water if you let it like it will turn itself into plants and those plants will suck in cloud moisture and like suck in evaporation from the lake and deposit it into the ground and so it's like you know a beautiful thing to to see here and we're like super lucky to have all that water um 
you know, and then Jeremy was talking about like the scale of permanence, and that's cool because after like the the climate and the and the and the landform of the water, you know, one of the things that I'll be looking at are uh, plant species and access. Um, and like Jeremy said, you know, we looked at we we're fortunate that we've all worked here for like <laughs> probably a combined a total a combined total of about thirteen years. Um, so you know we're going to start planning uh or we are at the moment planning like what species we're going to put into the ground so one of the things i'm excited to do is <laughs> i was just talking to nicolas uh shad's farm manager and he's getting me like he knows where a lot of the best uh you know what they call criollo or heirloom avocados in the valley are because this is like very close to the center of origin of avocados and there's a lot of amazing like criollo varieties here, but they're actually dying out because everybody is just propagating Haas uh, asexually over and over again. And the criollos, they're they're usually really big um, overstory trees that are just used as shade and coffee, but they tend not to be pruned and soil is degrading here. And a lot of them are just kind of dying out. And then people go like, oh the only avocado that's actually valuable to grow is uh is Haas so they like they take their the seeds from these nice big criollos that they have and they graft Haas avocados onto them and so it's actually just the gene pool is degenerating you know so I'm actually like super excited to make I think avocados like the star kind of perennial crop here apart from like malanga and turmeric and ginger and all those kind of uh, root crops but like we're in a nice region for growing avocados and we have water all year. So if we find a bunch of different Criollos um, that do well here um, and we graft them, we'll have, we could have avocados fruiting all year, you know, at different times, which is the other great advantage of, uh, of homesteading as opposed to commercial farming. So I'm like super excited to, to work on that. Uh, there's a there's a guy, uh, Manuel, up the road and he's uh, he runs a nursery and he's like a ninja at grafting. So I'm actually looking forward to learning uh, some grafting techniques from him. Um, so yeah, I'm involved in that. And yeah, what else? Like projects around. The volunteers and the apprentices are here. Um, it's great, you know. Uh, I feel like um, I'm I'm learning so much myself at the moment. Like I don't like in the classes that I teach or in these podcasts or in anything, I don't like to uh, present myself as an expert in anything. I'm not at all really. My family are dairy farmers, but I was a long way from that actually for, for a lot of the time I was growing up. Um, and... I did a lot of like gardening and landscaping, but I really only made my way into permaculture late. Um, and you know, it's so I'm still on like a very steep learning curve myself, but I feel like with the combined experience that we have, you know, all three of us have really like distilled down our, our crafts and we're like, we're able to teach stuff that it took us all years to figure out in like a very short space of time. So I think we've got like a fun uh, setup going here at the moment. You know, people are just coming up every day. Everyone's super motivated. We've got, what, four interns? Five. Five interns. A of them are just taking the other four. Um, yeah, and man, there's <laughs> so much going on then because we're running, uh, Shad in Atitlan Organics is running uh, a social permaculture course this week. So he invited me to sit in on 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 that. So that's super fun as well. Um, because I will say this actually, like in uh, with regards to what Jeremy says, like there's I think there's a good reason Darren Darty includes uh, social relations or 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 in, you know invisible structures above climate in in the decision making process because it's actually like uh, it's so it's so important, you know. Um, so it's like super fun to be learning about that uh and like in the role very much of a student again so yeah i don't know that's going on plus a bunch of other stuff i can't even remember <laughs> yeah that's a good way to sum it up um there is just a lot of moving parts a ton of things going on right now um 
what is it, the 20th of February today. So just a couple of days ago, we wrapped up another Introduction to Natural Building course. And we really packed this one. I've never had a group quite that large. And both Neil and Jeremy assisted on the course. We got to try out some new things that normally we don't get to because the groups are, well, are what we designed the course for. Um, But we just had so many people sign up and also the apprentices were there as well. So we got to test out a batch box rocket configuration for a stove and oven combo. That was pretty fun. I've never actually built batch box rockets before and it seemed like a good time to test it out. So far they're working really well. Um, A lot of little tweaks to be made and hopefully uh, once I get the system dialed in I'll be able to publish a manual so if anybody's interested in building something similar they can get the plans online for free. Um, So aside from the course uh, we're now three weeks or almost three weeks into the apprenticeship program and like we Neil mentioned a second ago we've got five apprentices for the next three months and the big push is to get the main house built. Um, There are a lot of aspects to the design of this structure, most of which we're considering the very limited budget that we have in this season while we're trying to get so many essential parts of the homestead dialed in and started so that we can take advantage of the rainy season to come and all of the potential for growth and maturation of the perennial systems in that season. But we also have to make the best use of what we have, as Jeremy mentioned, um, putting our priorities on what we can accomplish best in this dry season. Because we have really nice, dry weather, sunny days that aren't too hot, and they're just perfect for getting a lot of earthworks and a lot of building done. So we actually have some professional Guatemalan bambuceros or bamboo workers who are coming tomorrow, and they're going to be helping to teach the apprentices and myself quite frankly, um, how to frame with bamboo because the plans that we have for this house call for bamboo support posts and roofing systems. And we're also going to incorporate bajareque or wattle and daub wall systems to be the infill in between the bamboo posts. We're also going to be using some locally harvest wood in the flooring and in the framing. Um, And it's quite a simple and essential build for this season, taking care of all of our needs first. But we've already planned on a lot of extensions as our resources grow and we have more to invest in the infrastructure of our land. So it's a really great learning opportunity for the apprentices, but also we'll be posting videos and articles and other things on the website as soon as possible. It's just a matter of taking the time to process it. Um, So that all of you can learn from our process and our planning stages as well. In the meantime, um, there are other courses coming up in the next few months where actually, you know, let me give you back over to Neil for a second because he's going to explain a little more about the animal house, which is a nice kind of segue from the building that we're talking about and going back into some of the land projects. Yeah, that's another super exciting thing that we're about to get working on now is like our animal and like fertility system. Um, because kind of like as Jeremy schemes away on the earthworks and the way water moves through the property, really the whole model is to build fertility fast, to have all that alluvial soil like deposit onto our land, to grow a lot of vegetation that we can cut back or feed to animals or use as bedding for animals because that's really a big part of this model is generating a lot of organic matter and processing it quick and feeding ourselves, you know. So we've got like a nice space, not too far from the house on a little kind of downward slope. And the plan is to put kind of in, to put in a goat house uh, because Shad is very generously lending us his goats for the next year or so. Um, so I've managed those goats before. I love them. They're great animals and they're perfect for this climate. Uh, you can graze them. It, it effectively extends how big the land feels because you can you can graze them on kind of what they call monte you know like bushy kind of weedy material that just grows all over the valley um and you can always you can find forage all year because there's a river here so there's plenty of green areas um so that's pretty sweet but the idea is to kind of combine to to combine them with with poultry so we're going to build a little house for the goats on the top of the slope 
and then we're going to have it fold down into uh, or like have it share a wall with a chicken house which will have the chickens in a in a sealed off area but with a couple of swales going along to catch all their their um estiércol how do you say estiércol manure <laughs> uh which will mix like i say with the with the with the straw that the straw that we get in for the moment and then hopefully our own bedding that we can grow um so it's like a fun system to design because really for me i see any successful farm what it has first and foremost is a very efficient um uh fertility generating system um you know i like sometimes think about um the fertility or the the design of you know designing a permaculture farm is a little bit like design looking at a human body you know and the how the animals interact with the land it's kind of like the stomach of the farm it's what like it's what churns things down and and <laughs> and spits them out and processes them you know um you know and like obviously you can compare other organs like the the house is like the heart obviously the and the perennial systems are kind of like the lungs um you know or at least that's how i think about it um and yeah so that's like i'm super excited to design that system it'll be a different style of build because like lower lower tech uh we're gonna do it for like as cheap as, as we can but try and create like a really nice um system that's like easy to maintain and super comfortable for the animals aesthetically pleasing um and kind of doable for anyone on a low budget because that's a really important thing in an area like this is that there's so much unnecessary waste generated um that if it can be turned back into soil uh it's the first step in kind of arresting the sort of degradation of soil and uh deforestation that's occurring here you know um so super excited to get that model in place because you know hopefully it's a model that we can like share and 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 make available to people you know so jeremy will you tell us a little bit about some of the damage mitigation systems that we have factored into this design because though our climate here is absolutely ideal and there's a total paradise aspect to it we also get some pretty severe weather earthquakes um shearing winds hurricanes there are a lot of things that come through and majorly disrupt micro ecosystems here can you talk a little bit about what we've put in as far as security measures and resiliency strategies for those types of things yeah sure um we've got a couple different aspects to this sort of um this resiliency aspect of our landscape and of course our, our structures, right? Um, some of them are non-living and some of them are living. I'll talk about non-living structures that really help out these systems. Um, and for someone that's just even worked um, as, a, as a landscaper, basically is what you are when you're doing earthworks is you're a landscaper, but you're thinking about your landscape holistically and you're not just putting in things willy-nilly. There's very important decision-making going on. And of course, the biggest one is climate. And that's what we're talking about with damage mitigation. We're looking at what potential threats are in our climate. We know the benefits of it. We're having a great time with it every day. Um, though we're finding more opportunities in it as well. What we really have to look at is the risks involved with the, the climate that we're in. Um, a large part of that is the sort of washout basin that we're in. Um, it's not a big issue that we don't have a lot of like uh, serious gorges or gullies or quebradas as they call them here on the property but we do have a couple of sort of like small valleys that have formed one of them is right behind our house which is in the like um northeast corner which is a the the uphill sort of portion of the of the property on the east side um right behind it there's a small gully that's been formed from rain so it's obvious that water flows there during extreme downpours and we're talking. We mean when we say extreme downpours, we're talking about a lot of rain, sheets and sheets coming down. It's it's kind of they're kind of unpredictable. Like every year, there could be a you never know there could be a big storm. So it's very scary when you're investing a lot of time and money into a proper house. If it was just a bodega, we wouldn't really think about it too much. Not a big deal. Get over it if something happens. But a permanent structure like a house 
is uh, something to think about. So if this water rushes down there, um, we can put together immediately some non-living um, diversion and prevention tactics. Uh, one of them is digging a large swale on the backside of the terrace connecting to the uphill part where this water is coming in. Um, it was the first thing we did after flattening the area was, all right, let's put this in. Let's dig a large swale um, about a meter wide, 75 centimeters deep, running along the backside and sort of kicking out to one side. We just ran along the back edge, kicking out to one side. We didn't have to run the whole thing. It's not necessary because we know where the water's coming from. We just got to tell it where to go. Um, and you just build it slightly off contour. Uh, this water is, this soil is luckily very free draining for the most part. Uh, it's got a bit of clay in it, but it works quite well for drainage. So as long as we can bury that water a bit below the floor plan for the house by grabbing it before it even flows onto that, the flat terrace area, we're winning. So we take that, we dig it out, we throw in loads of rocks because we have so many. But before doing that, we put a layer of geotextile fabric in there. Um, the geotextile fabric uh, holds the rocks in place in there, stops soil sediment from filling up the cracks between the rocks, which would make them pretty much useless after a certain amount of years, stops roots from getting in there and sort of clogging it up. And basically you, you wrap it around and it, it sits at your just below your, uh, your floor level. Uh, we call it a French drain as well. Um, but it's, it's a great base to build a, a wall on. So before you even build the wall, put this in and put your wall over it so it's not getting in the way of everything. It was a very simple, easy thing to do. <laughs> in the moment, trying to retrofit earthworks is usually impossible, but uh, oftentimes a massive pain in the ass. So doing it immediately is good. <laughs> um, and seeing these things and having time to develop a strategy and uh, an action plan, what happens when? You know, these kind of things are simple if you just put them in place right away. Um, so we do that. We build a wall up behind it. We fill in this sort of gully with loads of big rocks. We have so many rocks. Anything that we can use to slow down the water is great. Rocks work better than anything. <laughs> They're big, dumb things. They're heavy. They don't move very much. They're annoying usually, but we just throw them in there and they do great stuff for us. They get the water to filter down. So that's a non-living aspect. The living aspect of it is putting in strong perennial hedges or living fences, we call them. Um, fencing is an important part of any build. It delineates the landscape um, and it provides edge space as well. And it creates biological friction for incoming um, entropic energy like wind, water, even sunlight, things that just could desiccate, um, erode, or um, fry the, the land and us living in it as well. These, um, these living uh, structures create microclimates for us. So from beyond slowing down all these um, natural forces, they provide habitat, um, <laughs> funnily enough, for us more than anything. We're creating habitat for ourselves, simple as that. And the best way to do that is to create living systems that can slow the wind down, that can shade out areas, that can sequester carbon for us so that we don't have to bring in biomass. It's all right there and no one thinks about fencing or they don't think about it enough. They think about it as a non-living, boring, it's a fence. <laughs> I'm like the only person I know that gets excited about fences. What's up with that? So let's, you know, this is what we're talking about here. Um, running bamboo on the north side as a sun trap I'll just say this real quick. Sun traps and our fences and our um, sort of storm mitigation, they all work together. If we put stuff on the top of the property that's tall and puts deep roots, it's not affecting our root zone below. It's not affecting our sun sector for the entire property. It's literally just catching it and slowing down all these other aspects we mentioned. Oh, man, you passed me the mic right as I took a bite of peanuts. <laughs> That was horrible timing. <laughs> Dude, I, no, but I'm I'm one of the other people who gets excited about living fencing too. I think there's an enormous amount of potential for it to serve as many functions as possible instead of just being something that is, you know, non-living and requires maintenance more than anything. You can actually get a significant yield off of 
are living fences as you have them planned with quite a bit of food intercropped in between um, certain other species. So before we move on to listener questions, I would love to hear a little bit from both of you about what you see the overarching vision for this project being. I mean, obviously, this is going to be a residence for the three of us, be a center for our business, at least here in Central America. But I know all of us have our own inspirations locked up in what we're doing here. And I'd love to hear a little bit more and you can share with our listeners what you see getting out of these projects, this living environment, and the potential for education with what we're doing right now. Um, yeah, so what, like what I, what my dream is, what, is that what you're asking me? Basically all the stuff that you never shut up about when we're hanging out in the evening, like we're doing right now, all of a sudden you're tongue tied. It's wonderful. <laughs> I don't normally hang out with this guy. Just want to make that really clear. <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, um, I'm just joking. I hang out with him all the time. Um, we are, <laughs> we own land together. Um, We've bought furniture together. You might say it's serious. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, really, I just want this to be a sweet sp- place to live, and like a beautiful. I want it to be above anything. I want it to be beautiful. Like I think, you know, hearing Jeremy talk about the sun trap at the back and the water systems and all the rest of it, it just it makes me dream about how abundant we can make this place if we really put our kind of hearts and soul into it. Uh, so that's kind of what we're doing, you know, just like doing it for the love of it. Um, even though I'm loving it, like I say, we're living in our bodega, drinking our sort of, uh, homebrew, uh, Uchi wine. <laughs> we got this bunch of, uh, Hokote harvest from our land and we just like, Hokote is a fruit that, that only grows here. It's amazing, but it all, so it all goes to fruit at once. Um, and you just end up with these huge crops. You don't know what to do with them. So this year we <laughs> we spent the whole day like juicing it and then left a lot of it to ferment. And oh, anyway, it turned out delicious. And so like, yeah, my dream is to just keep doing that. You know, like I honestly think that permaculture is about much more than um, landscape design and natural building. It's about building a sweet, nice life for yourself um, and showing other people how to do the same. <laughs> like you don't. People don't have to um, keep living these kind of sterile lives. It's super easy to make this change. Uh, and we want to do it for ourselves and and then show other people how to do it. I mean, that's basically it. And showing that it's not only affordable, but cheaper, especially when you like look at extra profits, like having loads of your own food. So A, you don't have to buy food, and B, you don't buy food that makes you sick, so you later need to buy medicine. From coincidentally, the same people who make the chemicals that go on the food that made you sick. Dun, dun, dun. Conspiracy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, I'm just joking. Don't sue me or kill me, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't know. That's my plan. Hopefully, um, you know, not to name any name. Yeah, hopefully, like, Monsanto aren't going to have me murdered. <laughs> that's really my only intention. Not to get murdered by Monsanto. No, no, no. All the other stuff I said before that, that's what I hope. <laughs> you guys are really getting good at handing me the mic right when I eat peanuts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Jeremy, let's hear from you. Tell us a little bit about what you see as your biggest inspiration in these projects, what you see as being the potential for education and propagating these types of models all around the world, because obviously there are a ton of factors that are unique to our site. But there is a general model of abundance and affordable regeneration that can be applied with the necessary tweaks for climate and situation pretty much anywhere in the world, right? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I guess the idea with a lot of these courses that we put on is to, as Neil said, distill down what we know and what we are excited about or passionate about or inspired by nature and the people around us about and simplify it. Reduce it down to its core concepts, right? That's where you start. And coincidentally, it's the same place where we can change our framework about the world around us as well. And 
not going to give away too much about her courses, but, um, <laughs> you know, they changed the way you look at the entire world and it's not, there's, it goes beyond words really. Um, I oftentimes don't have the right words to put in place to explain what it feels like to be like, um, communing with nature in this way, uh, and not to sound hippie with it, but like, yeah, basically, um, seeing everything else grow around you as you grow and, and the people around you as well. And like seeing how community develops around you and being a part of it. Uh, community is a tough one, uh, for me to explain how that works because it's really an emergent property of all the things we're doing. As Neil said, like try to enjoy your life. And usually to do that means like, um, benefit most other things around you. Um, when you really start to understand your own sense of well-being, <laughs> if you take a little while to like look into that, it's usually connected to the well-being of things around you. It's, it's not something you have to think too hard about. Um, but in order to do that, you need to um, incorporate and sort of impose good design on your systems that you're working on. Um, and so we always just go back to these sort of like um, concepts of permanence, things that will last a lot longer than your lifetime and decisions and impacts you can make that are going to go far beyond that. Um, and it helps us now as well. So all this together, I think it's an important education flat, uh, platform, uh, but more importantly, uh, a place for me to live. Thanks. <laughs> That's true. Without this, we'd all be so homeless. Doing fine, but like in the truest sense of the word, no real roots put down anywhere. We've all been traveling for quite a few years. Um, if I were to sum up my real inspiration in, in the Homestead project that we're implementing here, you can almost just do it in one word, and that would be potential. I am constantly inspired and excited about helping to actualize or realize the full potential of a site. So we have just around an acre here. It's a little under. And we get to wake up and go to work every day and figure out through observation and design how we can turn this little place into an absolute paradise. How we can create all of our favorite foods here. How we can live in a comfortable house made predominantly from materials that come from the nearby community. The potential for... Uh, helping to spread this information and inspire others to reach the full potential within their own lives, uh, for their communities, and for the environment at large. And that is just endlessly ins inspirational to me. And it's a living experiment. I get to live in an environment that we are constantly tweaking with, that we are constantly improving on. We are, you know, using trial and error and some borderline janky science sometimes. <laughs> um to figure out exactly how good we can make this place. That's just too much fun. I think that it comes down to that for all three of us. This is just a blast. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't rather be doing anything right now. And we just want more people to come in and join on the fun and, you know, help them realize their potential for their lives as well. So let's move on real quick now and answer a couple of questions from the Facebook page. So let's start off with one that I know Jeremy is going to be be able to answer the best. And this was submitted by David Jorgensen, who asked uh, for us to elaborate a little bit on biochar production methods and how biochar can be introduced into a regenerative landscape system. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, let's talk about biochar. Um, we'll talk about the production methods, but I guess just so um, bring everyone up to speed on what it is. Basically, biochar is carbon in the form of wood, like the lignin of wood, uh, uh, or of trees, I mean, sorry, <laughs> wood is lignin. Lignin is a material that you create biochar out of. It's their carbon chains. And most carbon um, in the f that we see in the form of wood or paper or other things like that, straw, hay, <coughs> hay they are extremely bioactive, meaning that they break down very quickly with the right elements involved and um, cycle back into the atmosphere eventually and then get sequestered again. With biochar, we're taking carbon and we're sequestering it or fixing it into a state that it maintains 
for a very long period of time, um, anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 years, from what I've heard. Um, it's a mineralization process of the carbon. Uh, the reason why that's amazing is because when you're trying to manage fertility, especially in the tropics, uh, carbon is our most important storage, not only for nutrients that are passing through the soil, but also for the uh, biology that makes it possible for nutrients to pass up the through the ecosystem via plants, then via um, invertebrates, vertebrates, blah, 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 until it eventually comes to us. Anyways, it's an important core to any kind of soil uh, building method. And so like to do it, basically we take carbon in a very, usually in a nice fine uh, texture, like rice holes work really well. We're actually going to experiment with coffee shells because they seem to have a quite a fine texture to them as well. And it's um, also with, with biochar, you're looking for waste streams of carbon so that you can have a consistent, hopefully free supply of them. Otherwise, it's kind of not worth trying to set up the systems for it. So keep that in mind. Um, simple systems that you can uh, put in place to do it um, are using metal structures like uh, we call them tonels or big uh, oil drums. Those are what you would use to contain the biochar and the fuel that you're burning. And um, to make it, basically, you're going to heat up the material that's turning into biochar and as soon as possible, put it into an anaerobic environment. This is how the carbon gets trapped and mineralized. The heat provides a uh, chemical reaction that turns it into a mineral um, with the absence of oxygen. Because if there's oxygen there, the carbon combines with the oxygen and floats off into the atmosphere. So it's as simple as that, really. And there's a number of ways to do that. Some more efficient than others, some more pure than others, some more environment environmentally friendly than others. Traditional ways of making biochar aren't usually um, <laughs> the best for the environment. Anyone's seen how charcoal is made? Oftentimes, people just dig a hole, light a fire in there with fuel, and then take a bunch of green matter and cover it over. That's basically turning it anaerobic after the heat starts, which works. But during that time, loads of gases uh, release, uh, loads of different carbon compound gases or organic gases all of which are much denser than CO2 even, some of them um, 30 to 100 times denser, which can mean serious problems for not only your lungs, but the atmosphere. So doing it right is important. If you see green smoke coming out of it, you should probably back away and think, <laughs> try to rebuild the system that you're doing. Uh, for, that's a key thing to keep in mind. Uh, like breathing this stuff in can mean like, it's like smoking like, I don't know, a pack or two of cigarettes. <laughs> so... You know, just be careful when you're doing it. Um, uh, uh, a safe way of doing it is to take a chamber and put it inside of the tonel that you put your biochar material in, something that you can cap off. And so no oxygen can enter or leave that around. So inside of the, the oil drum and around this inner um, capsule that you've made that you've put your biochar material in, something like fine, like rice holes, you'll burn fuel around that. Now... That will heat up the inner chamber and start to, um, uh, and the process will will start of mineralizing this carbon. Uh, that's the way I like to do it. There's pro there's many other ways. There's ways of just capping off all the stuff that you're burning, like running, shutting off the oxygen in there, and just turning everything that's in the barrel into biochar. Um, both ways are probably effective. Uh, I know of the first one. Neil, you said that you've worked with like the sort of capping off of whatever's in there, right? Um, and then just the last thing I'll say about it is like, make sure that you're doing something with the heat that you're producing from making the biochar. Don't just do it. It's not, you know, <laughs> as much as you're getting this amazing soil um, medium, you know, you're wasting fuel in a sense because you could be cooking stuff off of it. So think about a way that you can use the, the heat coming off of that. Um, should I talk about charging biochar because the way you use it? All right. Um, so then after you have the biochar, make sure um, if you have a, a fine, fine enough texture, it will be activated charcoal, which is much more useful than regular charcoal. Regular charcoal is just like kind of the stuff that you use to do a barbecue with, <laughs> which if you crush it up, it does something. But a really fine material that turns into like textures like sand, like 
like gritty kind of sand is really what you're looking for. This is usually activated, meaning that it has enough pore space to um, pull in all of the positive ion solutes that will be around it um, to an amazing extent. Literally every single ion that's floating or so solute that's floating around in, in the soil, nutrients, another way of saying it, all of it will get pulled in there and it will create an amazing soil community inside of these pore spaces in the material itself. Um, so that's called activating charcoal and it, it really basically means finding the right material that will have that texture you're looking for. After that, charging is very important. If you just put biochar in the soil, it does this thing I mentioned, pulling everything out of solution, which basically robs it from the plants and will oftentimes kill plants if you just add regular activated char uh, biochar to your soil. So what we recommend doing is taking your biochar and uh, sitting it in a compost tea would be the most effective. Any kind of nutrient soup, um, you can throw it in an animal pen so that the, it absorbs some of the liquid poo that washes off from um, uh, the, the mixture in there, the manures, etc. You can put it in a composting toilet. You can um, soak it in a nice poopy water. Poopy water is probably the best, in my opinion. I generally go for poopy water. Um, <laughs> have a fun time with it. Uh, it can also clean water amazingly well. So putting it through, um, yeah, poopy water. You can actually get drinking water from it. But I'm not going to talk about that. And, and don't don't do that. Um, don't try to drink the poopy water. Anyways. <laughs> Just pearls of wisdom falling out of Jeremy here. Everybody at home, please remember that. Don't drink poopy water. Um, <laughs> I really hope that I really hope that that answered your question, uh, David. And let's move on quickly to the next question, which was submitted by Amy Dixon, and she is asking for more information on um, how to start a plant nursery and how to start propagating your own plants in order to save from having to buy them at, I assume, landscaping stores and uh, seed suppliers. So, Neil, why don't you take this one? Hey, Amy. Um, yeah, good question. Um, setting up a nursery is actually a great thing to do um, for a bunch of reasons. It can be profitable. I've never, I've worked at a profitable nursery, but I've never, like, got one off the ground or anything. Um, but... Um, that's it. It's a decent way to make money, but it's also a great thing to do if you're starting a permaculture project because, kind of like Jeremy was saying earlier, just sort of camping on the land, not doing anything too permanent while you make your decisions and you see where the different sectors are and all the rest of it. Building compost and starting nursery are like a great way to spend a year. Um, and really, you don't need much. Shad has a great video on Atitlan Organics called How to Propagate Plants Using Your Intuition. Um, and it basically is just that. You propagate plants using your intuition. They will tell you how. If you spend any time looking at it at all, you will see they're either obviously flowering and giving a seed that you can identify. And if they're not, they're probably going to be woody and straight with nodes in it, in which case you try sticking them in the ground um or they're going to be like dividing out their roots somehow they're going to be like shooting out baby plants or falling along the ground somehow they're going to be trying to make more of themselves that's what plants do um and it's really usually only one of those few ways um once you propagate uh, a fruit for example by a seed you always have the option of grafting uh, another variety of that fruit onto it that's a whole different thing and really to start a nursery you don't even need to know that at the start what you need is like a good soil mix um and a, and a lot of containers um like great things to use for containers you can buy the containers you can buy like the plastic bags from any gardening store that have holes in the bottom but you can make your own as well um plastic bottles yogurt cans uh, sugar bags all those types of things are great uh containers for growing uh trees in and you can you can, so you can get them for free and like all you really need to know is they need to have, be punctured in the bottom and you need a soil mix that's kind of sandy 
that has like that's just nicely drained you know where you can water them easily um and i would just like a few simple tips for setting up a nursery i would say uh if you're doing it in an outdoor space put like a shade cloth over it if you get a lot of sun uh do it indoors if you're getting frost or something like that um and yeah like putting the plants in you know like simple things but that make a difference putting the plants in sections helps organizing it in a way that's just efficient to get around you want to have your bags next to your soil mix uh which both of them ideally would be near your access point you know you don't want to carry stuff very far uh so when you're bringing in more more pumice or white sand or more compost or whatever that you don't have to carry it too far kind of couple of pads and then like digging some small trenches so the plants don't fall over makes a big difference and it also means when you water them uh the water kind of stays at their roots that's kind of like a nice tip if you want to do it that way um but yeah it's a great thing to do something i would recommend anyone to do a good thing to remember like i say as well is like you can plant seeds of just about any fruit uh you know depending on what fruits grow well in your area you know find that out obviously but there's fruits that grow in different areas and you know for example say it's apples you start getting a bunch of apple seeds and just germinating them and putting them into bags that's a great thing to do because if you plant them on your land and then in a few years you find out that they don't none of them have nice fruits well hey the ones that are most productive can be cider fruits and the ones that aren't that good you can graft different species onto them once you've got the root stock in place um and so it's a, it's just a great thing to do and that, that's that's kind of true of any fruit tree um and it's super fun so more than anything i would say just go for it uh yeah that's perfect that's ex- that's basically what we do <laughs> we're not like we're not like uh industry line professionals with this kind of stuff um but we do use our tuition or intuition and t- tuition <laughs> to make it happen um but uh one thing i'll just say real quick uh if you don't have a place if you don't have a place um to start your you know to put your bags out and all that but you have some trees around you have some of these plants neil mentioned some ways to do asexual reproduction without having to do it in a greenhouse are we, these techniques we call layering uh, it's really useful to like go and experiment with. Say, if you have some plants in your yard that you like and you want to have more of, or your your friends or neighbors do, and you want one of them, um, a hundred percent success rate way to to propagate them is to take if it's a uh, a plant that you think will will propagate from stems, you can bend that branch down to the ground, staple it to the ground, put some soil over it, maybe make a little cut at a bud point on the on the plant. And if you have that stable to the ground and it's what, you know, there's water hitting it regularly, that point where it hits the ground will produce roots. This is what we call um, ground layering. Uh, it's a very simple technique. And if you give it enough time, you have 100% success rate on that plant rooting or that branch rooting. You simply cut it off of the mother plant, um, dig it up, put it in a, a pot or replant it from there. And you got yourself a new plant. Another one you can do is take soil in a bag or tin foil, um, find a branch that you want to propagate, cut a uh, little notch like we said in one of the buds, put that bag or tin foil wrap over it with the soil in it. You want something nice and moist that holds moist that you know holds water quite, uh, quite well, and wrap it around with either string or wrap the uh, tin foil around it many times. That will create an environment for the plant to put roots into and simply cutting below that bag after it's rooted into there means you got yourself a new plant and there's a 100% success rate basically of it rooting into that if you give it enough time. These are ways to do what Neil was mentioning but just out in the field or gorilla style. Um, It's helpful for people that don't like maybe they're in an apartment or they just don't really feel like putting the time into watering them or anything like that if they want to do a more passive way of propagation this is it's that nice guys thanks so much for all that um in-depth information i hope we answered your question amy so before we go now we're, we're going to wrap up a little bit because quite frankly it's past seven and i haven't eaten dinner yet we all should get some food um but before we go 
do you guys have anything you want to add about the direction that we're headed with our educational programs and development of this place before the end of the dry season? Hmm. Um, well, education programs, just like I say, we want to keep learning ourselves. And um, I think the big direction we want to go in is as well as doing um, high quality courses like the one we did up in with Lorenzo in, in Dalileo and the ones we're doing with Atitlan Organics um, would also be like more internships and, and mentoring programs where we can take people on and really just like I say, distill down uh, the information or the the experience that we've gathered and get people working on and seeing um, projects that we're that we're managing ourselves um, and learn by doing which is like by far the fastest way to, to do anything so yeah developing I guess that kind of like experiential um, learning platform I think is our next step yeah, I'm in, I'm in full agreement on that. I love the courses. It's a great way to get a lot of outreach, but to really, um, you know, focus in and get professionals moving in this career path, uh, doing these internships and apprentices uh, to me is super important because it's actually the only way that I got really into this. Um, as well, for us, it's not just like something that we're trying to give out to the world. We need professionals working with us so we can have a team going like we want to this can mean like instead of just people coming and learning and and going on off with with what we taught them we actually become uh associates or or like professionals working together it's very important and it i think it's important to create a horizontal um kind of working relationship with the people that we call students who are actually just human beings like us that um probably know more things than us <laughs> in a lot of ways <laughs> that's definitely one way to look human at it beings, <laughs> uh, what a guy like wow he considers his students to be human beings yeah it's, it's a good place to start <laughs> instead of students no, i'm just kidding jared that was really sweet actually <laughs> yeah i mean that's uh one of the things that i'm most excited about too is that we're not just um running simple education programs for you know people who want to throw in a little garden here and there i mean that's all well and good and you can definitely learn how to do that with the things that we're working on here but we're actually building a larger team to help us do more work implement more projects to regenerate larger ecosystems and yeah growing our network and growing our team is really what's what's turning into one of the unintended uh parts of the fun of this season that we're having so before I wrap up, I just want to reassure everybody who's been asking me for more videos and pictures and content that all that stuff is on the way. We're working with some good friends of ours um, who are photographers and videographers, and we'll soon have more content going up online of all the projects that we just mentioned in this episode. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and we'll see you again in another four weeks for a check-in on all of the projects going on here and to answer more listener questions. So, yeah, we'll catch up with you then. Adios, muchachos. Sí, hasta luego. I want to introduce you all to my love, Adriana. Adriana, come and say goodnight. This is Adriana, everybody. All right, well, Adriana will introduce herself. Um, the the next podcast. Right. <laughs> Verdad que sí, mi amor. This <laughs> is her laughing. I don't know if you can hear that or not. What a charmer! <laughs> All right, y'all, take care. We'll see you on the next episode. <laughs> what a fun mess that was! Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. 
While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.